of national security space, and the Space Force in particular, is to protect U.S. interests in space. And so we're getting many, many more interest in space through all these, these new ventures. So the combination of those four things uh, just leads me to believe that, that we have to up our game. And it's not just about supporting the joint terrestrial flight anymore. It's also about looking up and supporting U.S. interest in space and, 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 and the, the interest of our friends. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello there, podcasters. That was Joel Moser. He's the United States Space Force's Director of Science, Technology, and Research. That makes him the Space Force's Chief Scientist and a Principal Advisor to Chief of Space Operations, General Chan Saltzman. So when I spoke with Joel on Tuesday, his boss, the Space Force CSO, was before the Senate Armed Services Committee in the first of a coming series of budget hearings. In short, our mission forces, people, and partnerships make the Space Force the most formidable space organization on the planet. China and Russia know this and are accelerating their efforts to undermine U.S. advantages in the domain. To meet this challenge, the Space Force will prioritize three lines of effort. As Senator King's already stated, fielding combat-ready forces, amplifying the Guardian spirit, and partnering to win. These lines of efforts are designed to deliver the forces, personnel, and partnerships required for the Space Force to preserve U.S. advantages in space. And before I expand on the Space Force lines of effort, I'd like to update the subcommittee on the emerging threats Space Forces face. As the handout I've provided indicates, space is undeniably a contested and congested warfighting domain. When describing space threats, it's important to account for two kinds of threats. First, threats from space assets, and second, threats to space assets. Threats from space present a growing danger to the joint force. Both China and Russia have robust space-based capabilities that allow them to find, target, and attack U.S. military forces on land, at sea, and in the air. Equally alarming are the threats that endanger the satellites the nation relies on for prosperity and security. Both China and Russia continue to develop, field, and deploy a range of weapons aimed at U.S. space capabilities. The spectrum of threats to U.S. space capabilities include cyber warfare activities, electronic attack platforms, directed energy lasers designed to blind or damage satellite sensors, ground-to-orbit missiles to destroy satellites, and space-to-space orbital engagement systems that can attack U.S. satellites in space. The contested space domain shapes the enduring purpose of the United States Space Force. Congress established the Space Force to protect U.S. interests in space. This means protecting U.S. space capabilities and defending the joint force and the nation from space-enabled attack. My lines of effort are designed to achieve this vision by providing the forces, personnel, and partnerships required for the Space Force to preserve U.S. space superiority for the foreseeable future. My first priority is to build resilient, ready, combat-credible space forces. To do this, we are accelerating the pivot towards resilient satellite constellations, ground stations, networks, and data links. The Space Development Agency's proliferated warfighter space architecture provides a prime example of these efforts. 
We are also emphasizing cybersecurity and preparing guardians to detect and defeat cyber attacks against our networks, systems, ground stations, data links, and satellites. We are developing an operational test and training infrastructure that will be the backbone of Space Force readiness as guardians prepare for a high-intensity fight. So the question is, does the Biden administration's budget request for the U.S. Space Force give the CSO what he needs? We're going to hear more about the budget from the downlink regulars Chris Stone and Peter Gerritsen, and also from Sam Wilson, who's with the Aerospace Corporation. But first, while the CSO was on the Hill, I was about 800 miles away on the shores of Lake Michigan at Concordia University in Wisconsin. That's where the Chief of Space Force Doctrine, Lamont Colucci, hosted a kickoff event for the university's new National Security and Space Center, and Joel Moser was speaking at the event. Here's our conversation. Joel, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you and the state of Wisconsin. I would love it if you could take a moment and introduce yourself to the audience. You know, who you are, what you do, where you do it. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, my name is Joel Mosier. I work for the United States Space Force. I actually work uh, on the staff of the Four Star and the Chief of Space Operations, General Chance Saltzman, Salty Saltzman. And um, my job is the Director of Science, Technology, and Research for the Space Force. So what I does that really mean? I, yeah. have a, I have a team of folks that help me with this, but what we, we do um, is really take commander's intent, so the str strategies and the direction that the Chief of Space Operations wants to go, convert that to science and technology requirements, needs, projects, um, and then convey that to the science and technology community, folks like the Air Force Research Laboratory or DARPA or industry or academia. So we, we act as sort of a, uh, a translator from strategic intent into science and technology policy and then go the other way as well. So when a scientist comes up with a new methodology or algorithm or phenomenon that they think might be useful, we take those and translate them back into uh, strategic speak, so to speak, so that uh, the commander knows that that's the right thing and that's a valuable thing to do. And then overall, we um, try to prioritize those things, the, the most critical, most important things that we can sp spend our precious science and technology money on. Uh, we, we try to identify those and, and uh, get after those things. So that's what I do in a nutshell. Sounds like fun. Great fun. I'd like you to um, expand on what it is you do in the science, technology, and research directorate, you know, and how you actually build that foundation for the future. So the, the real challenge with science and technology development um, is that Science is a slow process. You know, when you're talking about understanding a natural phenomenon or some new aspect of an algorithm or artificial intelligence or quantum physics, whatever it happens to be, to go from that level of basic research to where it's actually something useful that for the for the defense of the country can take a long time. That can take sometimes 10, 20, 30, 40 years to come to a fruition. And so that means that 
that my job is very difficult because I have to anticipate many years in the future, decades in the future, what the needs are going to be of the United States Space Force, what the threats that are going to be out there, what the challenges we're going to have, what the geopolitical situation is, and then prioritize our investments today and make sure to make sure that we have options for that future. So a lot of what I do is in the realm of strategic foresight, really just trying to anticipate what our needs are going to be down the road and make smart decisions today. Because it's always easier to invest early in that science and technology development. If you don't, you're, you either face an existential threat or you're, you're caught flat-footed at the, at the end when, when the, that future becomes a reality, or it's an ex, at least an expensive, desperate fix that you have to scramble to come up with a solution for. So hopefully we can anticipate most of that. Strategic foresight is not easy. I mean, how do you even start to think about strategic foresight? I mean, you were talking decades, but, I mean, decades. I mean, at least 20, 30, 40 years out. You know, how do you prepare for a risk that you can't predict? That's a really great question, and it is hard. And it's not just technology that we have to try to prepare for. It's also what is the geopolitical situation? What's the social and the economic? And who are our competitors? Who provides threats? So we have to look across all of those areas, not only technical, but social, economic, environmental, political, um, and, and try to divine what the range of possibilities are. So you, you can never predict the future. That's, that's an impossibility. But you can at least understand what the likely bounds are of the future and then hopefully prepare for the, the most dangerous or most extreme bounds that, that you might face. So, so we do that by engaging with experts in all of those fields, political scientists, international relations folks, people that are, are thinking about social trends and, and geopolitical conflict and in the present and the future. Um, and it's really just a matter of putting enough brain power against it to really describe the bounds of what the future are. Once you have those bounds, there's a whole other problem. Of what are you going to do about it? What are you, what are you going to invest in to, to try to minimize the impact? So there, there's quite a bit of discussion, and, and the way we've done that in the Space Force is by convening uh, what we call Space Futures Workshops, and we've had six of them since 2018. Sometimes we, we go to, to internal government folks, we've gone to the intelligence community, we've gone to academia, to industry, the new space businesses, and we would ask them to help us think through those futures. And, and after doing this for many years, we start to get a, a set of pictures of what we think the possible scenarios are, and then we try to plan for it. The thing that we have to use many minds and many ideas to, to integrate together to get where we need to go. This is going to sound perhaps silly to the audience, but I'm sure that there's others in the audience that will thank me for asking you this. But what about sci-fi? I mean, <laughs> if you are creating a show like The Expanse, or if you are creating you know, there, there's a series of books called The Old Man's War by Scalzi, right? These are whole worlds with systems and rules and laws and treaties. I mean, mm -hmm. Do you ever look there? Absolutely. I love science fiction for that reason. Um, if there's a wacky idea of, of some technology or some capability that, that even if it's preposterous, that, that might come, come true if, over time, 
probably a piece of science fiction work or a book or a movie or um, something that, that took a similar idea, if not the same idea, and explored what are the social and the interpersonal and the ethical and the moral considerations that, that you know, in, from a perspective of a science fiction writer, make an interesting story. From the perspective of somebody like me, it's it's oh, it's a it's an idea that that they've explored and thought through a little bit. And since we're all about ideas, um, that's a great place for us to look is the the body of science fiction work, particularly as it relates to space. And there's lots of that. Earlier today, you said, and and we're now going to you know look more into the immediate future and the present. You know, you said that we were at a hinge in history. You know, what does that mean to you from your perspective as a Space Force chief scientist? And and why use the word hinge as opposed to point in time or crossroads or, you know, why is it hinge? Because I think of hinge as like a door or a window or something. Yeah, and... Um you know, what I really said was that we're in a hinge of history moment with respect to national security in space. And, and by hinge of history, I just mean a disruptive change. It's a time when, when the, the, the broad assumptions and the directions that uh, we, we've used really need to change. So we've been in the space age since Sputnik went up in, in the late 50s. And that has led to a lot of aspects of how we use space to support war fighting and, and national security. And today, space is a, a very critical part of a lot of things that we do. But there are a few things happening right now in 2023 that, that are kind of leading us in maybe a, an evolved direction or a, a different direction in I, I think there's four of those things that I, I've been able to identify. One of them is what I just mentioned. Space has become such an integral part of our way of life, our American way of life. Our, just about everything we do is somehow touched by space or, or you know, communicating on the Internet. Precision agriculture enabled by global positioning satellites, banking, the timing systems that they use. Um, there, there's just no end of the the way that, that space is impacting our modern way of life. Um, a lot of people don't realize that, realize the, the ways that it's happening. That's also true for the way we support our joint terrestrial warfighters. So in, in 1990, in the first Gulf War, uh, it's often called the first space war because we demonstrated for the first time at scale precision munitions that were enabled by global positioning satellites. Um, space-based imagery that gave us uh, real-time feedback on, on battle damage assessment. And that's only grown over time. And, and in fact... Um, in fact, we've got GIS Arda that's right. in Ukraine, which you know my audience is, has been learning about last month, where it's basically Uber for artillery. Mm -hmm. That's right. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of a, an enabler for a lot of things, including the way we Americans prefer to be engaged in, in conflict, which is on the other side of the globe and with precision so we, we limit collateral damage and things like that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, our, our adversaries and competitors have watched all of that and, and they are creating threats to our ability to do that. So the, the, 
many countries now. Um, there's a club of countries, I hate to say it that way, of, that have demonstrated anti-satellite weapons. You know, the U.S. has done it, Russia's done it, China's done it, India's done it. Those were all intended to hold assets that support war fighting at risk. Um, in addition to that, there's ground-based um, directed energy um, disruptions to dazzle our sensors, to, to jam our communications from space. There's in-space co-orbital threats. There's um, activities um, in space that would hold our assets at risk. So the threats have gone up. That's the second argument for why we're in a hinge of history. The third is the number of players. Because the cost of space has gone down thanks to things like reusable launch and smaller microelectronics, more countries and non-governmental entities and commercial entities are able to go to space. So it's a much more crowded place with a lot more players in it. And that's something that we haven't had to deal with heretofore. And the fourth is really, um, I like to call it the golden age of space. We're, we're to the point, again, because of the lowered cost of access to space, where people are thinking of all kinds of new applications, new business plans in space to do tourism, manufacturing, um, development of new technologies, exploration by private citizens. Uh, going to the moon, to Mars, um, all of that stuff is, is happening today and we see it every day in the news, just a new thing that's happening in space. And one of the roles of, of national security space, and the Space Force in particular, is to protect U.S. interests in space. And so we're getting many, many more interest in space through all these, these new ventures. So the combination of those four things uh, just leads me to believe that, that we have to up our game and it's not just about supporting the joint terrestrial fight anymore. It's also about looking up and supporting U.S. interest in space and, 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 and the, the interest of our friends. In the more immediate future, just because we are at this hinge, mm -hmm. how is your directorate or what is your directorate doing specifically to meet that challenge? Well, the strategic foresight work is, is a big part of it. Also... Um, you know, try. But that's like decades off. It is, but still, there there are things that we have to do today that 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 will pay fruit in in a near term sense. So, for example, developing ways to use proliferated Leo constellations as opposed to, in the past, we've relied on big geosynchronous birds that cost a billion dollars and were so expensive to launch, we piled all kinds of capability on them. That was great, but until our adversaries and others figured out ways to hold those at risk. Now we have to find out ways to make more resilient space systems uh, to deter aggression by denying uh, an adversary the benefit of taking out a big, big fat sending duck bird um, that's um, in geosynchronous orbit. We are looking at new ways to architect our systems, such as proliferated low Earth orbit satellites that can do things, or redundant systems, or uh, tactical responsive launch, ability to, to, to launch in uh, short order. I hate to interrupt you, yep. but just in case there are new listeners, proliferated really means just a whole bunch. A whole bunch. So of, of many satellites. Think it's, about, it's, it's, yeah. Think about SpaceX's Starlinks and the, the thousands of satellites that they've put up to, to do a job in low Earth orbit because they're always moving around the, the globe 
you have to have a lot of them as opposed to if you put it out in geosynchronous orbit, which is stationary with respect to the ground, you only need one to cover a particular geographic area. In proliferated LEO, you need many of them. But that gives us an advantage because it's hard to take out a thousand satellites as opposed to one. So, so because this is budget week, <laughs> I have to ask you this uncomfortable question. You know it. I apologize because I like you. But still, <laughs> here it is. Did you get enough? Well, so we saw at least... Or is there ever really enough? At least least in the the president's proposed budget, we're seeing the largest ever. And and we've seen increases since the creation of the Space Force, which was just three years ago. Um, 15% this year. Every year we're seeing an increase, and and that's very helpful because we have a lot to do. And there's a lot of systems that we have to get in place to make this resilient architecture that I just talked about. There's a lot of new new ways of doing business to prepare for the future that we have to get in place. And there's a lot of science and technology development that we have to do um, to prepare for that. So, so we are happy to see that, that we are supported in, by Congress and the President and that they recognize that this is an important job to be done and, and we just hope to do the best with our taxpayers' dollars as we can to, to make sure that space is secure and, and critical component of national security. Final question. Mm -hmm. It's short. Were you surprised that Space Force's budget was actually bigger than NASA's? I was. Very surprised. Um, It turns out that that the Space Force is currently hovering around 17,000 guardians. So that's the military. Altogether, so that's military. Military and civilian. That's about the same size as NASA. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's nice to see that, that uh, on the civil side we have a, a, a budget that's uh, just as robust as the military side, but I tend to look at the, the two together, the, the NASA budget plus the Space Force budget tells me that we have you know, on the order of $60 billion to really push space as a nation. And both pieces are, are really um, parts of, of national security in space. We have the hard power represented by the Space Force and the things that we do to support the joint fight, but there's also the soft power and the exploration and the things that NASA does that also makes us a great spacefaring nation. So I'm I'm happy for both of those. Joel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciated it. And now for a breakdown of where the budget meets policy. Here's my conversation with Chris, Peter, and Sam. Hi, Peter. Chris, it's great to have you both back on for the budget. Hi, Laura. Thank you. Great to be here. And Sam, welcome to the downlink. Thank you, Laura. Happy to be here. Now, before we start digging into the numbers and reading between the lines of just what the Space Force CSO told the Senate Armed Services Committee this week, let's take a moment to have you guys introduce yourselves. Chris, kick us off. Sure. I am Christopher Stone. I am the Senior Fellow for Space Deterrence at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies in Washington, D.C. I am um, a former Special Assistant to the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy, and I'm also currently a, uh, a consultant and senior advisor with Core CSI out in D.C. as well. And last but not least, I am also the author of a book called Reversing the Tau, the Framework for Credible Space Deterrence. And Sam, what about you? Uh, Hi, Laura. 
Um, my name is Sam Wilson. I am a policy analyst with the Center for Space Policy and Strategy, which is part of the Aerospace Corporation. And Peter, I've left you last on introductions because you have a new book. So tell us more. Indeed, I do. So my name is Peter Gerritsen. I'm a senior fellow in defense studies at the American Foreign Policy Council. And this month, I have a forthcoming book called The Next Space Race, a blueprint for American primacy in space with uh, Richard Harrison. And so that is available for pre-order now. And it basically gives an overview of what the United States and China are doing and what are the near-term things that the United States needs to do not to lose the game. So I'm going to put you on the spot, Peter, seeing that you said, you know, what are the things that the United States needs to do? And I don't really want to spoil it, spoil it, but if you could choose like your top thing, what would it be? Uh, It would be developing a long-range vision for how we're going to shape and exploit the space domain itself. Excellent. So the administration's asking for more than $33.3 billion for all Department of Defense space programs, and 30 of that $33 billion is for the Space Force. It's roughly twice what it received in 2021. So overall, what are your first impressions, Peter? And then Sam and Chris, you can jump in at will. Well, I think this fundamentally validates the assumptions and strategy of the Space Force advocates. They felt strongly that once the Space Force was free to be sort of managed uh, by Congress directly, that there was plenty of money and appetite to do more in space and that they were basically being held back by a uh, a fear of mismanagement by the Air Force. And now that they are freed, we have seen consistent increases each year, um, which I think is uh, is all to the good, and I expect still more to come. Yeah, and I would add, Laura, I think if you look at those first couple of years of the Space Force, a lot of it, a lot of the growth wasn't actually growth, right? It was just, it was actually bringing entities into the Space Force that already existed. Uh, last year, a great example is space, you know, they had this big, big uh, plus up, but a lot of that was from the SDA, the Space Development Agency, transferring in to the Space Force, as well as the the actual military personnel transforming into the Space Force, right? So, so the budget increase wasn't actually reflective of the growth. Now, they've really consolidated the defense-based activities in the department. Um, so what you're seeing is, is actually true growth, right? And, and, and there was growth in the last couple of years too, but I think those numbers um, don't actually reflect uh, what, was, what was exactly happening, right? Most of the growth last year in the budget was actually transfers of stuff that already existed. And this year, what you're seeing is, is just more priority on defense-based activity. And I'll just I'll just add I agree with I agree with that what you said same about you know last year was primarily moving things over so there really wasn't any real growth plus if you include inflation rate that wasn't included in the original budget rollout when people were talking about it um, you know every year since 2019 when the space force was established it's always the biggest space budget ever but um, and I think that there is I'm glad to see some things that we'll probably mention later in the discussion that I've been asking for and writing about for years, um, which again, I, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I will still mention that even though the defense budget as a whole is you know 800 and some billion dollars, that even with the uptick, 
but still less than 3% of the total DOD budget. And most of the Space Force budget is still RDT&E, which is research development, technology, et cetera. And so as a result, while they're pursuing some things that I'm looking forward to talking about, such as hard kill and soft kill capabilities for active defense and actual deterrence, uh, what, what the CSO, the Chief of Space Operations calls base combat power, um, I, I'm still, I, I want to see more detail. And until that detail comes out, I'm cautiously optimistic. Well, then this next question is definitely for you to kick off then, Chris, because there is some very interesting phraseology that has bubbled up to the top recently, specifically from the Secretary of the Air Force. He said, quote, there are hard kill and soft kill capabilities, if you will, that were funding, unquote. And there was Kristen Jones, who's working in the capacity of the Air Force undersecretary. She reportedly said, quote, the first operational imperative is to define and feel the space architecture we need for offensive and defensive space and counter space capabilities, unquote. And finally, the Space Force CSO Chance Saltzman told the Senate that as part of his first line of effort that his, quote, Emphasis on combat credibility ensures that we are fielding all the combat and combat support elements required to prevail against an adversary in space, unquote. Chris, what's going on here? Because this is very different from what we were hearing, gosh, maybe like even just three months ago. Right. So, and, and that's why I'm cautiously optimistic because while I'm seeing a, a improvement in the, in the rhetoric and in the language being used, such as the space priorities framework that the White House put out in late 21, um, talked about military space related operations in a warfighting support role only. The Secretary of the Air Force's speech at Space Symposium that year was also basically telling all the guardians in the room that, yep, we're, we're a critical enabler. And we're a support force and and things of that sort. And so because of that, you know, folks like me and others um, on the on the podcast here have written that, you know, we're fighting support is important, but using language like space superiority and war fighting and combat credible combat credibility, while the actual phraseology of of the operational imperative that was mentioned is resiliency. And that's what we've been hearing is is resiliency. Um, and things of that sort. And so the fact that we're now hearing they're pursuing hard kill and soft kill, offensive and defensive, and they're using terms that the the folks that have been in charge of, of developing the policy over the last couple of years of this administration is interesting to me. And it's, it's hopeful uh, to me. Now, what I don't know is how much of that is research and development and how much of that is close to being actually deployed. And so if General Saltzman is serious and is, if the SECAF, Secretary of the Air Force, is serious about combat credibility, which is necessary a necessary ingredient for deterrence against an active adversary such as the Chinese, who view very much so the, the need of offensive capability, then, then you're going to have to get that out and demonstrate it, and you're going to have to deploy it in numbers that are actually useful. Otherwise, it's just words. And so while I'm happy to see a plus up in the budget, even though it's a little bit, um, and even though I'm happy to see the, the rhetorical changes and the, the seemingly uh, allowance of General Saltzman to speak more like a warfighting service leader, um, I'm still holding my breath a little bit to see how much of this actually pans out. 
Laura, can I jump in on, on that? I, I wanted to, to just riff off of this this comment about research and development because there's been a lot of press about you know the the large share of the Space Force budget and research development. And you know this is no different than it's always been, right? That the the appropriation is is called research development testing and evaluation (RDT and E), um, and and this is a product of you know over sixty percent uh, of this year's of Space Force budget is is RDT and E. And even before the Space Force existed, it was always this way, right? And, and this is a product of the fact that space systems have been few in number and you know, extremely expensive, right? Billion, multi-billion dollar systems, uh, exquisite systems, small in number. What's interesting to me is that, you know, even though there's so much focus on, on the research development uh, portion of this, is that this could change, right? If, if we do adopt some of a, you know, this new architecture where we use cheaper systems, smaller systems, exploit lower orbits, um, you know, that means that our procurement costs might go up and our already T&E share might go down, right? So, so uh, you know, this is kind of a, a budget nerd point, but it's interesting to me to see, to think about how, you know, the Space Force is going to think about not just how to balance their already T&E budget. And already T&E is, you know, for all the cool things they want to do, right? But then actually, you know, to, to procure those in numbers, um, that's going to eat at those procurement dollars. And, and they just haven't had much, right? That just hasn't been a part of how we've done defense space. Right, and I'll just add one more thing, I guess along with that is the fact that the the area for those people who aren't budget nerds, the, the main area of the budget that usually consists of weapon systems and sustainment of weapon systems for use in actual combat is something called operations and maintenance or O&M. And if you look at the O&M budget compared with the Air Force, which is the other service in the Department of the Air Force, you'll see that it's pretty darn small. And as a percentage of, of the Department of the Air Force's total budget, the Air Force's O&M budget is practically larger than the majority of the Space Force's budget put together. So the other point I'll make is that, as he mentioned, RDT&E has been large in the space world for a while. And the reason why is because most of our stuff has been warfighting support. We launch those things up into space and they stay up there for 20 plus years. And you're mostly just paying for sustainment costs, which doesn't necessarily have to be a lot when you're using the same ground infrastructure and things of that sort. But if you're going to be having operating active vehicles that maneuver and need to be replaced, as Sam was mentioning, when you're replacing smaller, cheaper vehicles over a protracted period of time, and if you're going to be loading and reloading potential weapon systems, whether it's high-powered microwaves or kinetic weapon systems, you know that's going to need a, an increase in the O&M. So that's one way you can tell that a Space Force budget is moving into more of a warfighting service when their O&M budget will go up. And and what have you seen though? I mean, has the OM budget gone up for for what's being requested for 2024 or has it stayed static? It didn't look like it was really that much of an increase to me from, from what I've seen so far. And I'll probably defer to Sam since he's sort of the budget guru in the mix here, but I, I haven't seen relative to the rest of the budget um a an increase enough that makes me go, ooh, we have some new things coming. And plus, you've seen some cuts into programs such as NextGen OPIR, one of the big support programs where they're looking for missile warning and tracking that Sam and I wrote about a few months ago. I mean, obviously, they're they're looking at it from a layered approach. It's not just one system anymore like we have with Sibbers, but still, the fact that they're they're looking to move money to other places, you know, depending on where that goes with the increasing counter space or classified programs, you know, that's a possible good good sign. But O&M budget, I haven't seen any any big 
big plus ups. Have you, Sam? The the ratio of O and M uh, has been this largely the same from uh, FY twenty one to to FY twenty four for the Space Force. And so the the number has has gone up, but you know it was fifteen percent. Uh, or sorry, it was 16% in FY21, and it's it's 16.5% um, this year. So it it's really been f- consistent, and the RDT&E uh, number has been consistent. Again, I, I think the actual change could be when you start seeing some of what this, the Space Development Agency is is trying to do, right? Like, you know, I I see this as a product of a of you know we have always been hardware focused. We've also been hardware and small numbers focused. And so when we start actually kind of changing that model into smaller, cheaper systems, then we could start, you know, maybe cutting some of that RDD&E uh, percentage of the budget. Well, let me ask this maybe perhaps in a different way. And Peter, because I know that you work a lot um, and listen a lot to uh, the commercial side of space in connection with defense. But when you have all these different phrases and words that are being used, right, like combat, counter space, you know, readiness, you know, thing, things of that nature, you know, we have, you know, theory of success, et cetera, et cetera. And you do see, you know, a growing space force budget. I mean, is this the kind of demand signal that might inspire the commercial sector to start thinking about new systems to perhaps develop and and try to get the space force to buy into? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think it's it's hard for the commercial sector not to notice uh, such a big bump in the budget, uh, and in fact, you know, now significantly pulling ahead of, of NASA as sort of the big dog in, in space. And I think, you know, industry is listening hard to, you know, what's coming out of the, the mouths of, uh, of uh, Secretary uh, Calvelli as well as um, the CSO. And I think it's signaling, you know, directions about where the Space Force is heading. But at the same time, you know, the the procurement, aside from you know the desire of what SDA is doing in these small tranches, has not really moved over to significant commercial capabilities. So I don't see that. Um, you know, I do think that there's clearly an, an open door to uh, innovative companies that you know, like your previous two podcasts, are you know thinking about creating you know, pursuit spacecraft or thinking specifically about. Uh, you know, counter space and, and practicing, you know, doing range testing for uh, counter space capabilities. Uh, I think that's positive. Um, but whether or not this is a strong signal to commercial, I'd have to say no, because if you really look, you know, the big winners in this budget are missile warning and uh, SATCOM. And, you know, those are going to be, for the most part, very bespoke systems by the by the big contractors. And then it's a very difficult signal to parse out, you know, when we talk about counter space or offensive space systems, because one would assume that's buried in the classified uh, programs, which are, you know, last year were, you know, about 5.4 billion. And this year the request is is almost 5.8 billion. So not, not quite a 400 million bump, you know, but very few contractors are going to hear about that. And of course, you've got to be a clear contractor to, uh, to take part in that. So I, I really don't know that this is a 
a strong or positive uh, signal specifically to commercial. To keep moving this discussion along with the budget, you know, there's also been some recent rumblings on the Space Force National Guard. I mean, the last budget cycle, the Biden administration killed a bill. The senator from California, Diane Feinstein, and her colleague from Florida, Senator Marco Rubio, have been shopping around for support. Do we think that this is the year? You know, usually these ideas take a few years to bake, and it's fantastic, in my view, that it's coming back. The the failure of the Department of the Air Force and the Space Force to very openly um, uh, champion and get on board with this, I think, is you know penny wise and pound foolish. Uh, I, I think it's sort of the same for the administration. It is not healthy to have guardians orphaned uh, on the Space Force side, where they can't even go to the same basic training, where it's unclear how they need to be tasked. You know how they're going. You know how they should be uniformed in their identity. I think that's very unfortunate. And I, you know, as I published in my own op-ed, I think the Guard uh, could potentially bring a lot to offer. And I think the the fears of its uh, of its large budget are really overblown. I think that what the Guard is actually proposing is is quite reasonable. Yeah, and I'll I'll just mention that you know obviously each year that it's attempted again, it looks like there's always a little bit more support. Um, there's still the same detractors that you know, for whatever reason, act like they, it's all new to them and they've never heard it before. When I know for a fact that this stuff has been briefed numerous times to several staff members who have been there, especially on the Senate side, which is where things typically have died over the last several years. With Senator Feinstein looking at retirement after potentially this session, we'll have to see what happens if it doesn't go for this time. But with the administration trying to plan for the actual removal of of the guard from from space operations and taking all these skilled people who have experience in the commercial sector have innovative ideas and have means of taking those operational experiences they have and going straight to their personal civilian jobs and making things better both on electronic warfare side as well as other command and control missions that the guard supports I think I, I agree with with Peter that it definitely doesn't make any sense that they would be punting so many times um, based on false narratives that come out of either both the administration and other people who, for whatever reason, don't understand the contact. So I think there's a better there's a good shot as any this year. We'll see what happens. Um, it seems like there's a little more possibility on the Senate side than it was in the past, but we'll have to see what happens. And. There's something that could have crossed my mind about the Space National Guard. And, you know, when I've been listening to these, you know, hearings on the House and on the Senate side, and what always comes up is readiness. And when we think about readiness, we obviously think about readiness if, you know, the United States, you know, at home or abroad or in space is attacked. So I, I wonder about that readiness if we don't have a Space National Guard. And then on the other side of that, I think there's another kind of readiness that over the months that we all have been talking together about a Space National Guard, and and that's for here at home during times of natural disasters. And I know, Chris, you've got some some experience with that, at least with advising, you know, some state governments, but in terms of, you know, actually, you know, readiness to get goods and things from here to there or or how you know a fire is going to go or 
or that I just find it and, you know, I'm sorry, I'm crossing over into opinion land here, folks, but it just seems that not having a Space National Guard actually affects that kind of readiness. Yeah, I know. Help me out here, guys. Am I just like yeah. flapping here in the wind or, you know, no. is this like real? No, I, I'll just start by talking about the readiness piece from a combat military support to the to the Federal Department of Defense. And that is, and I know I probably mentioned this before on other podcasts, but it's still true that if there is no space guard and the original White House plan to remove space missions from all the guard units that have them right now, you're going to see 60% of the electromagnetic warfare, which is the jammers, the counter communication system and the bounty hunter, which are, are both open source things people can read up on, are pretty much most of what we have from a quote combat capability and 60% of that is in the guard. If you lose that 60%, you'll have a 60% drop off. It'll take at least a decade because the space force doesn't have the structure, the basing, the space to hot, to put all that equipment. They don't have the people, the, you know, the trained personnel with that level of experience, you know, decades of experience in those systems who have been deployed overseas supporting command commanders worldwide for years since the late 90s early 2000s and so you're going to have a readiness dip on that on at least in that area of operations not to not to mention space surveillance missile warning up at clear that's guard ran and then there are some satellite communications that are pretty critical for nuclear command and control aehf advanced extremely high frequency which has command and control out in california and so with all that going away and all that equipment, I mean, the, all the people are still going still to remain part of the states. Um, so that's one thing. On the other question, I'll just mention for, you know, people always ask the question you know, from the naysayers, why does a state need space for? Well, there are counties and states that use GIS or, or you know, satellite-based, you know, mapping and, and uh, imagery and things of that sort. California Fire uses... Uh, infrared data from from commercial providers and things of that sort to help figure out how to plan, you know, counter fire operations, um, other other sorts of things, flood damage assessment and all that. So not all of that comes from the federal government. Federal government can can supply that stuff through agreements between agencies and the states. But you know the, these these people that are experienced in all these ways of leveraging these capabilities, you know, are in the are in the state guards, and so. I think that's a benefit to the states, regardless of if they have a space unit or not, because of things called emergency management assistant compacts or EMAC agreements. And so because of those agreements, those equipment can be shared. And there are other equipment that they have that is not necessarily federally owned that could be leveraged. So people who say stuff like that are just not fully informed on the issue. And lastly, guys, is there anything that you think should have been in the budget that wasn't, or is there something that's in the budget that you're really happy is there? And well, I'll take a shot at that, you know, just to start off with, um, you know, while, while the prototyping budget is, uh, is pretty healthy in terms of how it's gone up, you know, the, uh, the basic research, applied research and advanced technology development is pathetic. I mean, it's they they flat out zeroed out the request for basic research for space science. So you know it had gone from you know from a proposed fifty five thousand down to you know sorry fifty five million to five million to zero in this request, 
And then uh, the uh, the the next category has gone, you know, from 360 million down to 206 million, right? So we've lost a third of that in uh, in applied research, and then you've lost, you know, nearly a uh, hundred thousand, sorry, a hundred million in uh, in advanced technology development. So, you know, this is uh, this is not looking very good for the seed corn of really going after the long-term advanced stuff. It does look like they're pushing pretty hard on, uh, on you know, prototyping. That's quite quite a healthy bump from uh, 2.9 uh, billion to 4.2 billion. But in terms of like the, the core of where the future is coming from, this budget could do a lot better. Laura, I won't make a normative uh, – I won't have a normative position on, on what I particularly like, but I would say what I find really interesting – is is not just the areas that have grown and people have brought up that missile warning and tracking the mission has gotten more funding this year than last year not as big of an increase as what missile warning and tracking got last year from the year before that to me was it was really clear right like everything there's you know there's two big uh missile warning and tracking programs in in rdt and e one is next gen opir which is focused on high altitude systems geo and polar and then there's this, this new uh, program called Resilient Missile Warning and Tracking, which is LEO and NEO. And what was interesting is, is that you know, last year, they, they both, both those programs did really well. This year, um, Resilient Missile Warning and Tracking has done really well. And next-gen OPIR has not done so well. So if you look at last year's budget, uh, what they were planning for for this year, uh, for next gen LPIR, that was 2.9 billion. Now that number for this year is like 2.955 billion, right? So it's so much smaller than what they were pretty significant delta. But then resilient missile warning and tracking got a huge bump, not just from what they were what they paid last year, but what they were planning to pay this year, right? So so a much more accelerated transition is what you're seeing from the department in moving from high orbit systems where this mission, this critical mission has always been to now lower orbit. So, so I think that's really, really interesting that we're doing that. And, and you kind of see this, this, you know, this ex exploitation of lower orbits and other capabilities too. Uh, Space Development Agency did really well also with its transport layer um, budget line. That, that one went not just up significantly double 1 billion to 2 billion from what it was last year, but also a big bump on what they anticipated this year was going to be. So, you know, I, I think when, you know, when we're looking at the budget and we're saying, oh, you know, SATCOM did really well compared to last year, it's it's really what's interesting is not just to see what, what increased from last year, but what has changed from what they were planning to do this year that they've changed, right? That's that's an indication of where the department is willing to accept more risk or whether wanna, they, where they want to, uh, their, their priorities have changed. Um, and and to me, my read of that is that there is more of a focus on lower altitude systems, right? And and you know this idea of resiliency via numbers and resiliency via diversity of of, of orbits is kind of what uh, what we're seeing. I would also just note, you know, when the when the justification books come out, so so you know we have the budget again. I'm I'm getting back into budget nerdy speak, but we have the budgets and we have the Excel files, uh, which some of us are are, are scrutinizing. But then there's also going to be, you know, much more interesting justification books that's going to explain each of these budget lines. And, and there's a new budget line this year called Long Range Kill Chain. 
And that's never been in the Space Force budget before. And it's significant. It's 243 million. Nobody has, has written about this, talked about this yet. Um, I'm really interested to, to kind of unpack, you know, everything that, that's involved uh, in that budget line when the when the when the J books come out. Well, I will be sure to call you up and get you back on so that you can explain just exactly what that is. Chris, what about you? Last yeah, word. I, I sure. So I, I mentioned I mentioned early on that I was happy to see the the, the rhetorical shifts in talking about offensive needs, and I, I'm hoping that part of that is resulting because of the depart the uh, director of national intelligence's worldwide threat assessment that comes out at the beginning of every year that anyone can Google and read. But every year, uh, this year in particular, I've noticed a, a more detailed discussion of what the Chinese are building and deploying. Uh, and you see what I've stated numerous times, which is they have multiple options, multiple ways of denying, degrading, and destroying our capabilities. And so while Sam and I have written on the importance of resiliency by depth, as I like to call it, where you have multiple orbits that, you know, we have one system that has multiple orbits for redundancy and not everything in low earth orbit. Um, I, I know that, that as I've been doing research that the, the Chinese are looking at ways of, of simplifying that problem set and looking at constellations like proliferated low earth orbit instead of it as multiple targets that confuse them into one singular target set. And they're working on ways to to address that, and I'll be publishing on that here in a little bit. So I'm still concerned that I'm I'm happy to see that they're talking about the need to have a warfighting capability. Finally, um, I am happy to see the CSO talking about a theory of success um, that includes offensive abilities for deterrence. Um, but given the way the budget looked, I'm concerned that we're still not moving as rapidly as we need to in fielding things. And while you can, as a space person, I know you can get some operational capacity from a research and development vehicle. Um, typically, you know, onesies, twosies of those aren't going to be sufficient against an adversary who's building dozens or more uh, of ways to take out your stuff. So I think we're we're still still a little sluggish on on the fielding forces side of things. And so I'm hoping that that next year's budget will be an even bigger push. And Peter, quickly, last note. So I, I just did want to call out the attention, you know, we heard uh, General Dickinson talk about space situational awareness being his top priority, and we've heard that from the Space Force leadership as well. And they are putting their money where their mouth is. The, they have more than tripled the budget on the system development side from uh, from just under $100 million to nearly uh, $400 million. And then the same thing on the operations, nearly a tripling uh, on the operations side. So uh, that's a when you look at the overall bumps, that's one of the larger bumps. Okay, Sam, quick. Uh, sorry, just one quick note. I think space situational awareness is also a really interesting area once once the justification justification books come out because you know there are four budget lines last year on on SSA on space situational awareness and and they consolidated that to two. But but as you're right, even with those two that were in the budget last year and those are zeroed out, there's still a big increase overall in the mission. 171 million. Uh, more SSA got uh, this year than last year, and that 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 increase wasn't anticipated in last year's uh, budget request. So, you know, this is another example of where priorities have changed. Um, however, I think really, you know, actually be able to see the details of of why this 
this system over that system will be will be interesting uh, once the budget justification books come out. Gentlemen, Sam, Chris, Peter, thank you guys so much. No problem. Thank Thanks very much. Thanks so much. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.